everybody. I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. So welcome back to 15-Minute Film Fanatics, the podcast where two friends and lifelong film fans watch movies separately and talk, talk about them together on the podcast for the first time. Well, this week, Mike, how excited are you about this week's film? Very. We have a special guest uh, and, and very excited for it. Very excited. So we're gonna, we are here in studio with Glenn Kenny, the author of Made Men, The Story of Goodfellas, which is his book length um, treatment about the making of the film. And it goes into so many things about it, about the, the screenplay and about Nicholas Pelleggi and the music and the real Henry Hill. And there's a cool Goodfellas chronology at the end. I got a copy of this book because um, as Glenn, I'm sure you read a lot. And I'm sure, Mike, I know you read a lot. Um, when you read a lot, people buy you books with the best intentions for gifts. And sometimes you think to yourself, I'm never going to read this. But I had read a review of this, Glenn, in the Wall Street Journal, and I said, I got to read this. And then for Christmas, my mother-in-law gave this to me for Christmas, and I said, big score. It was my, my own little literary Lufthansa heist. So, uh, Glenn, anything you want to say about the fun of writing this book? Yeah, well, it was a real passion project for me. Goodfellas has been a part of my life um, in an unusual way. I first interviewed Martin Scorsese as a journalist while he was editing the film. Uh, I was working in a magazine called Video Review, and uh, I had commissioned Scorsese to write an essay for us about how home video was going to transform uh, film appreciation in the future. This was all the way back in 1989, 31 years ago, 30 uh, years ago now. Uh, I went to his office, um, you know, because he wanted to do it in an as-told-to format. I was happy to go. I had just gotten the book Scorsese on Scorsese, which I brought with me and which he signed. And we worked on this essay together. And he told me about this movie he was uh, working on doing the editing, saying that, you know, even if it comes in at two and a half hours, it's going to be one of the fastest paced movies ever made. You know, and coming out of Last Temptation of Christ, which is many things, but not fast paced. <laughs> that was an interesting thing. And the subject matter was interesting. And I thought, well, this is something to see. I was a big Scorsese devotee to begin with. And then when I saw it, it just knocked my socks off. So, um, you know, years later and writing about film for various magazines and working at Premiere Magazine and then uh, interviewing Scorsese a number of times there and then writing reviews of the New York Times as I'm still doing, um, the opportunity came up to write this book to coincide with its 30th anniversary, which was, uh, didn't give me a lot of time to write it once the contracts were signed. I only had a year, but um, there was all sorts of pursuit of people to interview and a lot of suspense involved. I didn't even get, even though Scorsese's office told me that they were going to cooperate with me in October of 2018, uh, that happened to coincide with the beginning of the process of editing The Irishman, which was a very complicated one because it involved not only editing, but de-aging and sure. all sorts of digital considerations. And he likes to take his time. He always has in his contracts these days he gets a full year to edit a movie. And this was a year plus because of the de-aging. And he, when he's editing a movie, as if you read my book, you'll know he's very focused. Him and Thelma Schumacher are in that room and they don't want anybody else in there. And they don't want to hear from anybody else. So I didn't get to interview Scorsese for the book until March 9th, 2020, which <laughs> was a week before the manuscript was due. And which, as you probably know, was about a week before New York went into some kind of lockdown because of COVID. Yes. So it was a real cliffhanger all the way to the end. You know, I thought I was going to have a very leisurely, not leisurely, but I thought I was going to have a very orderly kind of workflow. I would do all my interviews in the summer, then I'd spend the fall and subsequent winter doing the actual writing. 
then during the summer, I found I was going to the public pool a little more than I was anticipating. And I was like, well, what's going on with this? And I realized I wasn't getting as many of the interviews as quickly as I wanted. And that turned out to be the case that the interviewing process went on, never stopped. It went on even as the um, writing process continued. And I found myself having to juggle a lot of balls and be uh, very, uh, you know, just to have a whole new way of working. So one of the things that you mentioned in your book, which is funny because you say, I, rem I still remember seeing it in the theater, how much it knocked me out. You, said, you mentioned the same thing, but one of the funny things in the book, if you want to talk about this for a second, because in our first segment, we talk about our overall impressions of the film. Clearly you were blown away from it by it. And so, were, so was I, and so was Mike. But um, in the book, you talk about how certain test audiences were not, they did not have the reactions that, that we seem to have had when we first saw the film. Can you talk about that? Well, they brought the film to preview. It was a Warner Brothers movie, and Warner Brothers was very excited by the project. It had to do with the fact that the book was a very hot property when it came out. Every filmmaker in Hollywood wanted to do it, including Brian De Palma, as Nick Pileggi told me about. And he said, I like Brian. I like Brian's movies. He says, Wise Guy's not a Brian De Palma movie. Wise Guy's a Martin Scorsese movie. Pileggi was very specifically drawn to, to, uh, to Scorsese right off the bat. He really wanted to make the movie with him to the extent that he was willing to let Scorsese go off and make Last Temptation of Christ first and then still make the movie with him. So the movie was a hot property. You know, it's one of those things that kind of gets, you know, aside from being liked for what it actually is, it, it gets that kind of weird Hollywood momentum where everybody wants it. So this was a movie that everybody wanted and Warner Brothers had it and Warner Brothers wanted it to be a hit. But Warner Brothers also, once it was in their hands and out of Scorsese's hands, Warner Brothers also did their testing of the movie in the usual way that they do, which is with no regard for where it would test positively. They show it to an Orange County crowd or Redondo Beach. <laughs> this is not exactly Scorsese country. This is not organized crime country. And of course, the movie starts out with some harrowing stuff. Um, the stabbing and shooting of Billy Bats. It's the first five minutes of the movie and that's and then the ironic punchline for as long as I can remember I always wanted to be a gangster and people were walking out they could time it I think they had three previews and by the third preview they could time it they would say well we're going to get our first walkouts at this point and sure enough you know women were upset by it there was one screening where the sound was out of sync and as Erwin Winkler told me, this crowd was calling, bring us Scorsese. It was like the, when they stormed the Capitol and says, where's Pelosi? They wanted his head. So those previews did not go well at all. And the studio was in a panic. Scorsese had final cut in his contract uh, or something close to it. He had his producer, Erwin Winkler, protecting him. And he said no. And what happened, which turned it around really, uh, was the movie started getting great reviews from the critics uh, at Venice and before Venice. Um, it won a prize at Venice. It suddenly, suddenly it had a good reputation. The previews were disastrous. They hung over everybody's head. They made everybody crazy. But then it was like it never happened. <laughs> and the movie went on to do good business for Warner Brothers. But it didn't do such good business that you necessarily assumed that it was going to become the pop culture touchstone that it did. Certainly, right. We never knew we'd be saying, you think it's funny? How am I funny? Yeah, no, how am I funny? Yeah. 
later on, later on. So one of the things to finish up segment one, we like to talk about our overall impression of the film and like a couple phrases or a couple things. So, so let, we'll, we'll just go around the horn for a second. So Mike, what's your, what's your overall thing on why you think Goodfellas is great? And then we'll see what Glenn says about that. Sure, I have an impression and a question, which is, um, so I'm from Jersey, you're from Jersey. Glenn, you, I, I'm sure you're from the area. No, New, New Jersey. Yeah. So th there's, a, there's, a, there's some kind of family thing going there. You just mentioned the, the California audiences where, you know, your aunt or your sister-in-law or somebody has that same hair that Karen has, you know, to start off the movie. And so, th so there's some kind of endearment. Long Island bouffant, yes. Exactly. So there's some kind of like, there's some kind of endearment with the characters that I think gives you a pass on some of the violence and some of the um, some of the elements of low culture that that kind of work into the film. Well, you, you know, but, I'm 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 also partially Italian American. I know these, I know these people. They, I know these people very well. I know you 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 stop feeding the dog or I'll kill you. I mean, yeah, yeah. that wasn't my family, but we knew people like that. Mainly um, <laughs> because we didn't have a dog, we didn't have that. So you know, I mean. It's just like I'll slap, you know, you, you know, that way of talking to kids is very Italian American when you're mad at them. Uh, all sorts of things, the food, the centering around food. That's a big thing in Nora Ephron's movies too, but in the Italian American context, it is a different thing. So uh, the cooking of the Sunday meal and it's an all day thing. It's an all day thing and it, it doesn't have to be, but it has to be, if you know what I'm saying. Make so I knew all that stuff and that was very, um, close to me and dear to me in a sense. Italian-American life in California, I guess the only real literature of it, I think, is John Fonte. Uh, <laughs> and it's different. It's more, uh, it's more wine oriented, um, you know. But uh, yeah, I guess I, 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 guess I, I, I kind of stepped on your question. I think I, I hope I answered it. But I think, you know, for me, um, that's the thing. There are these, there are these, you know, characters whose traits we recognize that we're almost intimate with, but they're also sociopathic killers. Well, the the question here is, um, and specifically for that reason, is I have never watched this movie. I've seen it a thousand times, and I I grew up with the movie. I've never seen it as a glorification, um, as that of that kind of life. And I'm act, I, I find it interesting that people can walk away from the movie and think that it is that it is a glorification because the, the impression in my head is of Henry driving, followed by the helicopter, yeah. sweating. It's like, know, they, it's, like they felt, it's like they it's like they took a break at a certain point in the movie. People do that with Wolf of Wall Street too. You know, he goes to prison. It's like, oh, but it's so cool. Um, he goes to prison, he's made a fool of, he loses the respect of his family. But you know, oh, but he's, you know, look at him with quaaludes. No, that's not cool. But I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, he, he's, at a, he's at a trial and he's testifying against his best friends and sending them to jail. And that was the thing that Henry Hill never got over in real life. You know, if you hear him on uh, commentaries with Ed McDonald and people like that for the 25th anniversary of the film or 20th anniversary of the film, you know, he, he's talking to Ed McDonald saying, oh, I can't believe I was such a violent person. I, I took part in all these violent and terrible things. I'm so regretful. And, and you, Ed McDonald, you helped me, da, 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 da. And I talked to Ed McDonald about that. He said, yeah, he didn't care about any of that. And he didn't say that with any sense of judgment, but, but he said, you know, what he cared about, and Joe Hill, Henry's younger brother, who's not depicted in the film, Michael is the only brother who's depicted. He had two sisters and two brothers, and uh, the only person who allowed themselves to be depicted in Wise Guy or Goodfellas was Michael. And Michael wanted to like vouchsafe a little bit of immortality because he was 
confined to a wheelchair. He had cystic fibrosis, and at the time he was the oldest living cystic fibrosis uh, patient. But um, Joe Hill said, you know, um, what really hurt him was the fact that he betrayed his friends and he didn't have his friends anymore. And that tormented him till the end of his life. And it helped him, you know, it helped push him further into drug addiction and alcoholism. It's not glamorous. It's not fun. He went out, you know, he went out in a very sad way. He would call Ed McDonald sitting on the Santa Monica Pier and Ed McDonald would try and, you know, would have to talk him out of jumping off, you know. You talk, you talk about the real Henry Hill in your book as well, and that's what we're going to be talking about when we get to part two. So we'll pause here and we'll see everybody in part two. So welcome back in part two. As you know, we always talk about our favorite moment or a moment we think represents the film as a whole. Um, Glenn, I'd like to get your opinion on a moment that I picked for today's show. And it's the moment where um, Henry finds out that Karen was thrown out of the car he drives her back. He says, are you okay? She says, yes. He walks across the street and he pistol whips the neighbor. Yeah. And I, yeah, I picked that moment because for me, and I want to get your reaction to this, there, that's the moment I think where the audience, we talked in the first segment about glamorizing the, uh, you know, the, the mob, so to speak, but that's the moment where I think we get closest to Henry because the guy, the guy that pushed Karen out of the car had this coming to him. But I think that we don't get to come fully close to him because when I watched it again for the show today, I noticed that he hits him, he hits him 11 times with a gun. So he doesn't just walk across the street and pop him one like Lee Marvin would. And then you're like, that's what you get. And you're kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're kind of cheering for him. That scene goes on a couple seconds longer than, than you might want it to, to make you more uncomfortable. And yeah. I wonder what you think about the extent to which the movie kind of almost teases us for wanting to have it both ways. Like we kind of want to be on Henry's side, but at the same time, we're repulsed by him as well. Like what yeah. do you make the viewer's relationship? He's gonna, this, what he's doing in that scene, he's going to teach that guy a lesson. Yeah. Because uh, to pop him once and get him, make him go down, that's one thing. But he's got to humiliate him. Mm -hmm. He's just, you know, that's the thing. He has that animal cunning. It's not, you know, it is, there is a certain amount of sadism to it because he's angry. Sure. He's sure. mad at this. He had never, and this is what kind of hooked, I think it's a weird thing and it's not pleasant to think about but it's it's what it's what forges the alliance with henry and karen yeah because he's drawn to her he's attracted to her he likes her moxie but this is the point where there's a real kind of emotional connection and it leads into her helping him as a criminal too later on because she agrees to throw away the gun there's a lot going on in that scene. I'm, I'm glad you picked it out because it's very complicated. There is that satisfaction of seeing this kind of entitled, privileged Long Island jerk <laughs> getting his comeuppance, but it is, it's more than enough. Yeah. And, but he's, he's not, his, it's not his fury that's driving him, although he is furious. This is the way professional killers professional violent people work it's not just enough to get him down right get him down keep him down keep hitting him know that you're not going to stop and that there is not going to be a next time because next time you're going down for good that but was I, the point of that i don't i don't necessarily get the sense from the scene that that was the plan all along or 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 it's like instinct it's like it's it's like instinct it's 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 what it's what he does yeah, it's who he is. Yeah, but he does. So he Mike, understands. He understands how this violence works. Yeah, that's his world, right? 
Mike, what was it, what was your moment that you could offer up uh, here and have Glenn get his take on it? Uh, actually, it, it's not. Um, it's a it's a favorite moment, which is uh, when Karen confronts him for standing her up on the date, which is where it's it's easy to think of this just as you know we were talking before about Italian American heritage. It's it's easy to think of this as just a, a kind of Italian thing between uh, between Italians of people get that get sucked into the mob. But I think that it's closer to what Glenn just said, which is that there's there's a society of of those people that understand um, an almost animal dominance uh, like structure of society, people that uh, just won't take bullshit from other people. And that and she shows that she's part of the club in a way that Henry does not expect. And that's when he accepts her. And then you can and also the, the guys are the guys laugh. Yeah, the guys are laughing at it. And that's kind of funny because um, they're like, so what are you what are you going to do? What are you going to do about this? But they think it's funny. If it had been done by a different woman, a less attractive woman or something like that, they might not have been so amused, but she gives it to them and they like it. They like that they, they like that she has the moxie to bust his balls. Yeah. And again, she, he likes her nerve, he takes notice of her and he notices that she's really attractive. And then they have this kind of uh, hookup where they're uh, kind of equal erotic partners to a certain extent. Their passion, you know, Scorsese doesn't do a lot of sex scenes or love scenes or nude scenes, but when they're together, that the sexual chemistry is definitely present. And but and, and, but there's, present. A, there's, there's a kind of algebra in the film of people that are in the club and out of it. And you oh, can that's for sure. That's absolutely. And who's, who's in and who's out. There's the, there's the guy that sells the wigs, you know, who's yeah. kind of part Yeah, part he's, of out. Their, he's, he's definitely out. out. He, he's, he's out. The, and he's, he, the, he's the useful idiot. He's he's out by the way that he's plaintive, and that's yeah. that's all you need to see or kind of to comprehend to know that he's out of the club. And but that that first moment where he's in, I think, is it, or you realize the algebra that's going on is when is when Karen is accepted. Yeah, very much so. She tells him to hide his cross. Yeah. So Glenn, well, let's end segment two by asking you. You you've seen this film, I'm sure, more times than you can count, more times than than uh, Mike and I put together, and a bunch of other people put together. So if you had to pick a moment that that always strikes you, or that you you just you just can't get over how great it is, or something that just that just represents the film as a whole for you, what would you pick? There's too many, but for yeah, now are. I'll say, especially since we're talking about being in and out of the family, I think near the end when when Henry has to go to Pauly and kind of eat dirt. Yeah. Paulie's standing there. You don't even know exactly what's going on. Are they in a store or what? He, but he's making sausages in this kitchen. Uh, and he doesn't look happy that Henry's there. And there's the whole thing of giving him the three grand. Right. But then when Paulie says, and now I got to turn my back on you. Not now, not now I'm going to turn my back on you. Not now I want to turn my back on you. Now I gotta turn my back on you. But he doesn't say it in a way that's warm or that he sounds like he's regretting it. He's saying it's just the way it is. Now I gotta turn my back on you. Paul Sorvino, a master actor, a master actor, a very garrulous guy who wasn't used to playing quiet people yeah, at that, that comes point, up in your book. but yeah. plays this guy perfectly. Yeah. And that one line, the reading of it is very flat. There's a real desolation to that scene. Yeah, it reminded me of it was it, it was like um, when Al Pacino tells Robert Duvall, "You're out, Tom," it, in, a, in a different kind of key. Yeah, yeah, but, it, but in that scene, he's not out permanently. Right, he's not out permanently. Right. He's out 
for this inning. You know, he's like a, he's like a player. He's benched player. He's coming back. He's coming back. But he's Michael has to say it in a definite enough way just to make it understood. Certainly. When Servino says, now I got to turn my back on you, it's forever. Well, and Henry understands. He says 3,000 lousy bucks. That's what I got for a lifetime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he's not, Henry's not benched. He's off the team. He's, he's, he's off the team. Yeah, the team. that's an amazing moment. All right, great. So we'll see you in part three. Okay, welcome back. So in part three, we like to talk about the title, the ending, or our overall takeaways of the film. Uh, Dan, you've, you've read uh, Glenn's book. Um, so do you want to, is there something sure. you want to say about the title, the ending, or the book? Sure, I'm holding it right here, and, I, and I'd, like to, I'd like to ask Glenn about his epigraph he chose, because, you know, you have a whole book about Goodfellas, all the things you could use as an epigraph to invite the viewer into this world, and his epigraph is by Jean Genet from The Thief's Journal, and the quotation is, treachery is beautiful if it makes us sing. <laughs> so, Glenn, can you talk about treachery is beautiful if it makes us sing? Why'd you choose that as your epigraph? Well, because the movie itself is a, is a, is a, is a form of art that is, that is about treachery and it's so beautifully done that the movie itself sings. Um, but also reading The Thief's Journal, you know, Jean Genet is very different from the guys we see in Goodfellas. He was a, uh, first of all, he's French. Um, second of all, he's gay, which is not something that would have been overtly tolerated in that uh, Queen's Mafia circle. And he was mostly a a thief and a vagabond, not part of any crew, but uh, part of different loosely affiliated gangs. But the whole point of the Thief's Journal and a lot of his other writings is he's making a kind of moral case for criminality. Uh, so I feel like there's an affinity between Jean Genet and, and people like Henry Hill who are, who are talking about a lifestyle that they, um, that they felt drawn to, you know? Janae is different because he does examine morality uh, in, in an interesting way, and in, especially in terms of law versus morality. The thing about, um, you know, um, Henry Hill is that they never consider morality, but the treachery is what, what finally undoes them all, and it becomes not beautiful. It doesn't become this song, you know, there's this song of, you know, yee-haw, we're hijacking this truck, you know? That's for, for Henry and those guys, that's the beautiful kind of treachery. The treachery that, uh, you know, has Henry Hill living the rest of his life like a schnook is not, is not something to sing about. So that was where I thought it would be. Also, I, I, I wanted something high, Also, I wanted something highbrow, you know? <laughs> you know, it's always, it's always, you know, people will be like, well, that's pretty highbrow. This guy must know what he's, what he's up to. Absolutely. So, I was going to say at the, at the end, you know, but at the, it's living like a schnook, you know, um, he sings, but of course at the end, one of the things about the ending is he's wholly unrepentant. Right. Well, singing. yeah. And there's also, there's also the play on the word sing. Yeah. You know, sing like a canary. Right. He does at the end. Well, so I, there's, that, um, there's that too. From a high <laughs> perspective, as much as I like um, Our Lady of the Flowers, uh, this is a, a really, it's a beautiful art form that Scorsese brings together the, the lowbrow to create something that is highbrow. And I think that that's, it's deeply, it's deeply misunderstood that the, the beauty is kind of in its bones and in, in its structure and not necessarily in irredeemable characters or the, or the things that are being, being shown on the screen. And I think that that was lost on a lot of the original audiences. And Scorsese, Scorsese in interviews has been known to play down his own literariness. He says he's not a big reader, but he reads. You know, when 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 Michael Powell and him, when his mentor, the filmmaker Michael Powell and him, 
were discussing uh, after hours and Powell was talking about its affinities to Kafka, you know, Scorsese knew what that was about and he was able to actually draw from that and make it his own Kafka sort of ending. He's a, he's a really smart guy. Absolutely. Yeah. There's no way he could have made after hours if he didn't know Kafka. Absolutely. So anything else, Glenn, about, about the end of the film? That's what we usually talk about in the third segment. What, you know, what do you make of stopping the film where he does about, you know, when he addresses the audience and it's, it's one of those interest, you know, it's very interesting, you know, and I could probably teach a whole class about the last 20 minutes of the film. Cause that's the part of the movie where the music stops as, as you know, after that whole sort of suite of loud rock songs accompanying Henry on his journey of, meat sauce and helicopters and cocaine. Uh, and then the gun to the head, that's the last time you hear any music. So then it's all like no music, the scenes with Ed McDonald and Ed McDonald doesn't care where you go if you pop a rot. The scene with, um, you know, Karen in jail, she threw away the drugs. He's completely out of his mind about that. The scene with Pauly, now I gotta turn my back on you. And it's very even paced, the shots are longer, the scenes are quieter, so it seems to have settled down into a much more kind of conventional kind of movie. And then he's in the courtroom testifying, and suddenly there's a cut, and he turns and he looks straight in the camera and he starts talking. And then he jumps out of the witness box, and the camera's <laughs> backing up as he's walking toward the camera, and you're like, whoa! Yeah. I mean, you've been used to the fact that he's the narrator, but you don't get them actually talking to you. So that's just sort of like, an example of Scorsese's daring and his judgment that he keeps the movie. He almost lets the movie get, I won't say boring, but stayed. He lets it get a little more conventional and the quiet becomes this thing. It has a certain desolation to it and you just don't really know where you're going to be at. Then he starts talking to the camera and then it's like, Oh, Whoa. Okay. And he says, and now it's over. Well, it's, it's, I think, a certain amount of plot unpredictability yeah. uh, turns right. into form, it turns into formal unpredictability. Right. I mean, it, it, you, you never know who's going to turn around and stab or shoot somebody else. And once all that's gone, uh, the, the internal pressure of that not being Henry's life anymore turns into, you know, the formal... They kind of know he's not going to get killed because he's yeah. the narrator. But then again, <laughs> that's a convention that Scorsese breaks in Casino where he has one of the narrators being yeah. Nicky, Joe Pesci, who, you know gets buried alive and is speaking from beyond the grave. Not unlike Joe Gillis in Sunset Boulevard, but at least that's set up in a little differently. So then you have him living the rest of his life like a sugar. And then you have Joe Pesci in a completely different costume, shooting a gun at the audience. And then you have the Sex Pistols, Sid Vicious version of My Way. And it becomes crazy again. Yes. For, yes. The, end, for the end, it becomes crazy again. And in a different way than it's been the whole film. Yeah, that, watching it again for today's show, that, that image of Joe Pesci uh, shooting the gun in a scene not from the film is just, it's just perfectly how it's, it's stuck in there in, in Henry's mind. One of the first things that Scorsese came up with, Barbara DeFina says he was talking about using that version of My Way when they were shooting Last Temptation of Christ, what she called it, that crazy Sid Vicious song. <laughs> well, that was great, Glenn. Thank you so much for talking to us about, about your book. About, and, and all the listeners, you can get Made Men everywhere where books are sold on Amazon or anywhere else. But Glenn, thank you so much for talking to us about Goodfellas. We hope that our listeners will go watch the film again. It's the kind of movie we return to all the time. Thank you so much for being with us, Glenn. It's been such a pleasure. Have me back anytime. I'd love to thank you. talk more. Thank you. Check out Glenn's book if you get a chance. That's Kenny K-E-N-N-Y. Made Men, the story of Goodfellas. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.